0: This is Channel 253. In this episode of Interchangeable White
1: Ladies. It is work that is easily misconstrued. Um, and I think particularly in contexts where there are uh, heavily loaded conversations, there, there are tensions around race relations. I think you do have to be very thoughtful about proceeding with this type of work uh, in a U.S. setting where you have a lot of diversity, which doesn't is not to say don't do it.
2: Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. One, two, two. two. Interchangeable. white ladies. Inter- interchangeable. Inter- interchangeable. White ladies. Welcome to the Interchangeable White Ladies podcast. I'm Hope.
3: I'm Megan. So for today's essential question, why do we need racial affinity groups to combat racism, and how do they lead to
2: sustainable change? We are so excited to have two special guests with us today. One, you might remember, especially her voice, uh, Emily Meadows, who's an LGBTQ consultant and published author specializing in international schools. If you missed our conversation digging in depth with that topic, please go back and download episode 99. It was fantastic. Lots of useful information and some good contact um, on there as well. You might want to follow up with Emily if you're interested in those kinds of issues. We also have with us today uh, Tamara Friedman, and she has a master in secondary education from Stanford University and a master's in school administration from UC Berkeley. She's worked as an educator, a teacher leader and administrator for over 25 years. She's a nationally board certified teacher. Yep, me too. And has been awarded by both Berkeley Unified School District Teacher of the Year and the Berkeley Public Education Foundation Distinguished Teacher of the Year. Throughout her career, she has focused on working towards implementing culturally relevant and anti-racist pedagogy in her classrooms. She is currently working as a fourth grade teacher at the American School School of The Hague. Welcome to the show, ladies. Thank
3: you. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for joining
2: us. Um, before we get into our topic today, is there anything that we missed in your bios that you think would be important for listeners to have in terms of understanding kind of you, who you are and what what you're bringing to this conversation today?
0: Hi, uh, this is Emily. I would say for me, one thing is I grew up in an international school. So I I tend to focus my work on this field. I've been working within them for the vast majority of my career. And it's a specific kind of a lens, a specific kind of a context that that I bring to, to the work.
1: Yeah, and I would say on the flip side, I'm new to international schools. So I really spent the first 25 years of my career in Berkeley, California, um, and so, it's been a really eye-opening and interesting experience to join the community of international schools, and especially with the lens of anti-racist work in particular. So, meeting Emily was really, a uh, really phenomenal moment for me to to get started on this work in international schools. Mm-hmm.
3: So, I um, I remember receiving a like text messages from Hope when she joined your the first meeting of the group. Um, that the both of you have started and it just looked like such interesting work can you tell our listeners just a bit about one what is the work that that you that your group is doing um, and two how did it start what was kind of the inception of the group that you've started
1: um I'm ha- happy to answer that um, one of the things that really started the work is Emily and I going on long long walks and talking uh, but I think Part of the the work really stemmed out of processing situations that we'd been in. I know for me, it was really processing an actual situation that I was in in an international school that kind of shocked and surprised me, um, where I overheard a teacher um, use a, a really use a statement that I found to be pretty blatantly racist. And what surprised me more than that was my inability in the moment mm. to interrupt that racist comment or to kind of seamlessly know how to address it in a way that would actually be productive. And when I had that conversation with Emily, I think it really just, it it started us on this long journey to thinking about, okay, so how do we in these predominantly white spaces help ourselves and help other teachers become more accountable um, for being anti-racist and truly be in that work. And so I think that for me was really the the beginning of it, the work here in the Netherlands for me. Yeah, <clears throat> something
0: as well as, I, you know, Tamara is coming from Berkeley where um, there were already established affinity gr- racial affinity groups. And this was something that I think is newer in the international school space. Uh, and part of the reason I believe is because we are international, there are a lot of nationalities represented in our international yeah. schools. And I think that's been used as sort of a um, deflection or perhaps an excuse for not, not digging a bit deeper, not, not working a bit harder toward diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. Because we can sort of say from a nationalities perspective, we have the diversity and then it, and then it kind of stops. Right. Um, and so we thought it would be interesting to look at this specifically for international schools, because, um, you know, a, a story that I shared in one of our groups uh, where, where I had a similar experience to Tamara found myself sort of reflecting back on um, where I wish I had done better uh, is, is when I was as an international school student, moved back to the U.S. for my undergrad. I was in a an education course, and um, the teacher was talking about racism in schools. And I had come from international schools that had told me, you know, all through my my early years that we were diverse and everyone was equal, and I believed that as a white person, that was a very comfortable and easy thing for me to embrace. And so, um, when I came back to the States and the teacher was talking about how, no, there's a lot of racism in schools and how white people benefit from this. Um, it took me some time to accept that. And my teacher was actually really, uh, an incredible professor, but also did not know really anything about international schools. So I actually was able to sort of flip through the cracks in that first um exposure because he was unable to sort of challenge me effectively because he really didn't know so we wanted to bring the conversation specifically to international schools so that there wouldn't be those deflections or those excuses so that we could hold one other accountable within these spaces
1: and i think megan you you asked sort of what is the work too and i think mm-hmm. we kind of didn't get to that mm-hmm. piece of it and I think the, the importance of having these spaces as race based affinity groups. And we really intentionally call our group a white accountability group. Um, first of all, I think up front, it's really important to say we're not a white supremacist group. Um, what we are is we're a group of white anti racists who appreciate that the inside out work of whiteness mm. is best done often in the, in the, in a white space. And the reason for that really is that uh, oftentimes in mixed race groups when diversity inclusion work is happening, um, it's very uh, often that the white reaction which is shame and guilt and these really important aha moments that happen for white people end up centering whiteness once again Mm -hmm. and can be very traumatizing and re-traumatizing for people of color. So it can feel really uncomfortable as a white educator who is an anti-racist to say, I'm gonna join a group of only white people. It it can feel uncomfortable, Um, but in the end, it's about us taking responsibility and ownership for our own whiteness and those moments that we need to have in spaces where we are not then being taken care of by people of color, Mm -hmm. um, which can be again, traumatizing, I think.
2: Mm -hmm. yeah and what you're describing makes me think um about just some of the conversations i've had around the weaponizing of white tears and Mm -hmm. white women's tears in particular and so having an affinity group mm, there's you're still gonna have white women (laughs) tears but the impact of them is it's a little bit different right because you're not harming you're not actively harming somebody in that particular given space yes exactly i think
3: yeah i think was the last episode that we did um of the podcast where we talked about how like white women's tears are one of the most dangerous weapons in the world right now in, in terms of racism. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, yeah, by just having it be a white accountability group, you're not, you're taking away the weaponization of those tears and the harmful impact on people of color that have to, like oftentimes, especially in education, especially Mm -hmm. in PDs of education that is such a white space um, that teachers of color are then expected to carry the weight and burden of white women's tears and shame around the work. Um, uh, And oftentimes not intentionally, right? That's just the byproduct Mm -hmm. of those trainings. I guess before we jump too far into this too, as as a person who doesn't have any um, international experience, my question as somebody who is stateside and which many of our listeners probably are, is how you've talked kind of alluded to how it's international schools are different, how those conversations are different. I'm just really curious about how, how is the work around or conversations around racism different how have you experienced conversations around anti-racism different? Um, what are those differences? What are the similarities? What kind of, what is the common thread across um, these different nationalities as well? I think a common thread
0: is that <clears throat> talking about whiteness is uncomfortable and we look for ways to avoid it. That's a common thread that the, the, the yeah. differences are some of the ways that we in international spaces deflect that conversation or avoid that conversation um, and avoid acknowledging our participation in racism. So for example, um, you know, you I've heard comments such as, well, I'm I'm a white person living in, you know, India or Kenya or whatever. And here I'm the minority. Here I'm you know out of place because of my race. So that mm-hmm. sort of reverse racism claim. Mm-hmm. Um, or you might hear something like, well, <clears throat> in our school, we have a, a service learning program where we go to these poor countries, majority black and brown countries, and we give our time and service. Um, therefore, you know, we are making the world a better place and fighting against, you know, racial um, disparities. Um, meanwhile, the focus really is on the, ch- the white children's experience as sort of problem solvers rather than agency um, and the agency of the people of color and, and a complete ignoring of our historical, um, the historical context where these problems and disparities have been created by white people, right? So there's a number of different ways that international schools and, and international educators kind of avoid and deflect their uh, accountability. But the thread is that white people sort of all around the world don't want to have these conversations. That being said,
3: (laughs) that being said, (laughs) our
0: group is completely voluntary, obviously. And um, Tamara and I have worked really hard and have been really deliberate about when we show up and say, we are not the experts here. We're not here to tell you <laughs> what you've done wrong and to show that we've done better. We are all here to learn together. And this is a mm-hmm. space to be vulnerable. And Tamara and I have really tried to show um, ourselves as vulnerable and ourselves as learners and ourselves as wanting to grow and get better. Um, and I think that that has helped people to show up and feel able and, and willing to have these conversations and not to feel like they're going to be shamed or chastised for their, you know, being white basically, but that we find that we are empowered and we're able to move forward with solutions, um, for our own, you know, for our own accountability.
1: I just wanted to add too that coming new to international schools, um, you know, I was really struck very quickly and, and I'm in the Netherlands, which is a predominantly white country. So there's there are many layers to this, but it did feel like a very, very white space. And there is this focus on the idea of nationalities, different nationalities mm-hmm. and internationalism is, is lifted as mm-hmm. this really positive piece of our community, but there's no acknowledgement of race and the role that that plays within that in the international school setting. And it's what Emily Koch, Ka- you know, commonly refers to as this idea of exceptionalism. And I mm-hmm. think it's been mm-hmm. very easy mm-hmm. for international schools to say, that's a United States problem, mm-hmm. and it's not yeah. our problem. Yeah. And mm-hmm. actually, last year, with Black Lives Matter and the death, the killing of George George Floyd, it was a moment that international schools And people around the world said, oh, you know, maybe this is something we need to take a look at. So I'm hopeful that that's a beginning of a conversation. But I would also venture a guess. I don't have statistics in front of me that predominantly international schools are staffed by white teachers.
2: and that, well, and so to build off that, because this is my first year in, or second year in international school, one of the things I noticed is the difference between like the conversation around staff and faculty. So just like the racial and cultural and, and nationality like mix up. And so I think depending on where you're at, that can look quite different. Um, so we have the, I would, I would argue like here in Abu Dhabi, we have quite a diverse, like culturally, racially, religiously, actually as well, linguistically staff, if you count everybody, right. Yeah. Looking at everybody. But I think that's some of the subtle pieces that are different here is, and I hadn't I don't know. I didn't anticipate coming into it. Right. So just the conversations about what, um, you know, the ways that people talk, Maybe I guess one easy way to think about it is like a microaggression, right? There's lots of little microaggressions just in the way that people accidentally say things that are disempowering towards certain disciplines that happen to be staffed by predominantly women or predominantly women of color, you know, just different kind of subtle things that are said about kids from certain places, certain kids in the subgroups from Mm -hmm. certain places. And a lot of that's very much unconscious, you know, but Mm -hmm. I I found that that's some some of the ways that it's manifested um, in some of my experience abroad.
0: And Hope, I don't know about at your school in particular, but um, I want to give credit to International School Services Diversity Collaborative, who has yes. done a lot of work um, in collecting data around racial demographics in mm-hmm. faculty and in particularly international school leadership. And uh, yeah. there's it's it's overwhelmingly white. It's overwhelmingly male still in international schools around the world. So, uh, while we, we may, you know, celebrate the diversity among students, uh, the, the, the leadership certainly is not reflective of the student body.
2: And I love your point about last year's, um, George Ford's murder really, I think, became a catalyst for a lot of folks to have that re-examination. So mm-hmm. I, 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 I know I agree with you. Like a lot of people are hopeful. People want to do the right mm-hmm. thing and want to, I think in some regards want to continue to progress in these things. But sometimes, you know, we get stagnant or apathetic about it, or it's not as much on the forefront. Um, but such a time as this, we're here <laughs> We're here now. And yeah. if we don't do something about it now, what are we doing with our lives? Yeah. And I, I really am excited to
3: jump into kind of what, your hope is in doing this work. What kind of changes you hope to see, and then also how our listeners can um, can take those ideas and maybe implement them where they're at. But first, let's take a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll we'll continue this conversation. Hi, Hope. Hey, Megan. So, how's life in Abu Dhabi? Uh, hot, sunny, sandy, and ninety-nine degrees. <laughs> Ooh, the exact opposite here in Tacoma. Cold, cloudy. And really what?
2: <laughs> well, this is part of the fun of living overseas. I mean, it is amazing teaching abroad, as you know. I can't say enough about the experience, being in a different place for an extended period of time, experiencing a variety of cultures. I'm in the best of both worlds. I love my job, and I have amazing opportunities.
3: Yeah, and my jealousy is growing. So I actually have a coworker who's interested in teaching abroad, and I was telling them about your and Nate's experience. If she wants to teach abroad, what should she do?
2: That's actually easy. She should go to searchassociates.com and start her search today. Search Associates works with 800 schools in 125 countries, so there are many, many places to choose from depending on her interests. That is a lot of options.
3: Is it overwhelming?
2: Not at all. The awesome thing about it is when you sign up using Search Associates, you are assigned an associate who works directly with you to get to know your interests and what you're looking for, and they'll help you find the perfect fit. It couldn't be easier. More than 40,000 highly qualified teachers, administrators, counselors, librarians, interns, and other educators have used Search Associates to find positions in top K-12 international schools.
3: Wait, wait, wait. So any teacher can sign up?
2: Yes. Emphasis on any. Search Associates is committed to finding placements for teachers of diverse backgrounds. They're doing the work internally as an organization and also within the international schools community. They want to use their position to influence changes at schools they work with as well and support diverse candidates in those schools.
3: You know, that's a really great approach.
2: It is. So if you're ready to make that move, uh, come across the world, come overseas, do what Nate and I did, and trust the expert guidance of Search Associates. To start your journey, visit searchassociates.com. Thank you, Search Associates, for helping us live our dream and teach abroad. And thank you for your support of this podcast. All right. uh, Welcome back. So as we kind of shift a little bit, I do want to ask a little bit more about like how you guys have organized. So you said this work is voluntary. How are you? And you mentioned the diversity collaborative and we're hoping to have them on the podcast soon, um, just to share their own work at some point, but how are you guys, how did you decide how to approach this? I mean, I love that you said you're putting yourself there as open, you know, lessons that you're, you're putting yourself, making yourself vulnerable for folks. You know, this is a learning growth process for everyone. And so I'm wondering what were some of the decisions that you guys have made in terms of how you're organizing these meetings, how you're, recruiting folks to join um, and what you what you're hoping to accomplish with that. Well,
1: I think for sure, for the first meeting, you know, as I said, we walked and talked on this for a long time. And for the first meeting, we really landed on this idea of starting with stories. We wanted our narratives to be a way in to really set the table and so to speak, or set the tone for all of our future meetings. And um, so this idea of using stories, real life stories, Partially because we feel that many people in our community have read the reading list of books that sort of came out after George Floyd, uh, between mm-hmm. white fragility and mm-hmm. which books that you've mentioned previously on your podcast. Um, and we really wanted this to be much more about okay, so these are the books, now what? Mm-hmm. Um, and so by sharing our stories, we were trying to immediately. Uh, um, land in real world scenarios where people could think of themselves in real world scenarios and think about first how they might themselves act differently. There's this real temptation in conversations about race um, to make yourself perhaps out to be the hero or, you know, to prove your wokeness, so to speak. But yeah. we really wanted to sort of head that off at the at the past by saying, hey, we're going to share right up front a couple of stories. we didn't do great. And I think that was one of the pieces of setting, setting the table. So I think the first part to, to answer the question of what's the trajectory, the first part is really the inside out work of having people reflect on themselves. Did you want to add on to that, Emily? Yeah, I I completely agree with that. Um, I'll also say that, you know,
0: we we sort of thought it was going to be us and maybe like two or three other people to begin with, <laughs> and we were shocked. Like our first meeting, the only way we really, I mean, promoted it was, I guess I put it on Twitter, and I did give it to the Diversity yeah. Collaborative. Oh, I think Aloc also um, yep. put something out about it, but we weren't expecting that many people. And at our first session, sixty-four people showed up from all around the world, and really ready to do the work like we were also sort of afraid we'd have to spend a lot of time explaining to people how we are not you know a white supremacist group or you know we we sort of didn't know what the because there aren't affinity groups there aren't loads of affinity groups especially for white people in the international school space so we thought we would need to be doing a lot more work um, to even sort of convince people that this was worthwhile and that just hasn't been the case. Uh, The other thing I would add on in terms of sort of how we're we're planning and structuring the sessions is that we want to be sure that this is not, we're not a training. We're not offering trainings or or, Mm. or anything like that. We have a referral list for professionals of color that we refer out if people want trainings for their school. Um, We offer a space. We facilitate a conversation. We provide a little bit of content to get folks going. But then really the bulk of our sessions, um, we want people in their own breakout rooms doing their own reflection and their own conversation and practicing that accountability work for themselves and with their um, you know their colleagues or their, their peers in this space. And so we're, we really believe that actually practicing it is important for being able to do, like Tamara said, when you find yourself sort of in a situation, um, you're more prepared to interrupt either your own instincts toward your own yeah. racist instincts or those that you see around you. And so we want this space to be like a safe spot where people can be vulnerable, where people can sort of ask questions and, and practice and hopefully be better prepared for the ch- the challenging work on the ground, you know, in these spaces, which are still very dominantly um, white and, and where,
1: um change can be hard to make and i just wanted to add too i think emily uh emphasizing that we're not leaders in a training we're trying to also empower leadership from within the group mm-hmm. and yeah. we're actually doing that very quickly by having some other people volunteer to lead some book studies over the summer because we do really feel that people are doing important and interesting work all over the world and Mm -hmm. we'd love to hear from them. And so I think it's our hope ultimately Mm -hmm. that different people will step into this facilitative Mm -hmm. role based on their own expertise. And we already have several people that are excited about leading these book studies over the summer and that's gonna really, I think, expand our uh, leadership capacity within the base of this group.
2: Is there a framework that you all are using as you're pulling, you know, what to do and how to facilitate each of the conversations? Cause even I was struck the last meeting I attended, like, I just loved how you broke down, you know, the different ways that white people deflect and there's just, you know, nine different ways. And it was like, there it is on paper. Which one are you? You're all of them at some point. And so where are you pulling? Um, it was, yeah, it was an interesting conversation in, in my small group just around that and people kind of wrestling with like, well, I don't like we've described, right. Well, I'm not on there, but oh, I mm-hmm. am, but how do I talk about it? about how I am and acknowledge that I am instead of making excuses. And it was a really it was a really great conversation. Okay. But I'm I'm curious, do you guys have a resource that you're using um, to help?
0: Yeah, we've been pulling different resources. So we don't have sort of a playbook oh. that we're using. Um, but I get Tamara and I continue to walk and talk a lot about this. Yeah, um, I love it. And so we sort of the first one we just wanted to do really introductory and get a sense of where folks are. And then we've been using, you know, gauging the meetings, the sessions <clears throat> the feedback and what we're hearing and seeing within the group to think about what's going to be most useful next. And then we, yes, we definitely are standing on the shoulders of people who have done work before us. So we pulled, we pull resources from various um places, different writings, different um anti-racism groups, different books. We we so it's not a it's not a set, you know, sort of program, but we we're using a lot of the things that we have read and learned over time together to Put together something like sort of tailor a program for our group that we think is going to be most relevant for the people who, who have been showing up.
1: Yeah, just to name a few of those people. So Joe Trust, um, his website is Culturally Responsive Leadership, and he's a, a leader and administrator in the Bay Area, and he has some really valuable resources. And I think what was really inspiring to us about his website in particular was this idea of just do it. There's this way in which I think organizations and schools feel like, but I, you know, am I going to do it wrong? Or how Mm -hmm. do I do it? Or what can I do? And so it was really inspiring to look at his website and go, okay, we actually don't have a playbook, but we're going to go ahead and use various resources and look at them and just go ahead and jump right in and try and do it. Um, And so I think that that has been a really valuable resource. And as Emily said, we just, you know, we've pulled from a lot of different spaces and places. I know for the deflections piece, we started actually with some work that was being done at my old district in Berkeley Unified School District. And then we landed on a few other websites that sort of supported that work. And, you know, we're happy to provide that information to you later.
2: Mm-hmm. One of the awkward questions I'll ask um, since it's related to this is, I've, I find in some of the activism that I've done around organizing white people, um, there's often a conversation of like, how do you make sure why folks are still accountable to people of color and still being like not putting themselves centered, not leading. So how do you, how do you reconcile that tension or what are some ways that you all are talking about how to make sure you're accountable to people of color and you're not just like off doing your own thing that seems really good and feels right. Um, but is also (laughs) maybe could go different ways. I know
0: it's so true. We, we talked about this a lot too. I mean, And we, we, yeah, (laughs) I I don't know that there's a perfect system because we also don't want to put the burden on people of color to sort of keep us in check. Like, hey, can you watch us? Can you, can you double check this? Can you correct us when we mess up? Mm -hmm. Um, But some of the things we're doing just for transparency, like we publish our slides. So the slide deck that we use for our Mm -hmm. sessions, that kind of gives the information. We make that available for anyone to look at and use at any time so that, you know, if somebody is interested in what we're doing, it's not sort of behind closed doors, like trust us, we're doing the right thing. We make it, we make it transparent. We're also really careful. um, We use resources developed by people of color to try to center those voices. um, And we, we, and we try to make sure that people know we're not sort of wanting to take the place of people of color in terms of training. So we, we don't offer sessions. We don't mm-hmm. offer paid labor. Um, and we do make refer, we have a referral list that was, um, that was put together by the diversity collaborative and also um, by ALOC to make sure that if people want to do this work, that they are paying professionals uh, to, to do that in their schools. Um,
1: let's see, what else, camera? are we, for well, I mean, I think it's also about, su- yeah, supporting and publishing and publicizing the work yeah. of uh, affinity groups for people of color. Um, mm-hmm. I think that, you know, it's it's not widely known necessarily in the international community, but ALAC, ALAC has quite a few mm-hmm. groups that are for people yeah. of color. And I think mm-hmm. that's the other important piece mm-hmm. of it that sometimes white people struggle with is that people of color actually need a space that's safe and in the absence mm-hmm. of whiteness, to have mm. conversations that they, they need to have. Um, so I think lifting up that work mm. and as Emily said, making sure that we always, uh, say aloud that we are not the people that need to be doing the trainings and we're not the diversity inclusion work people who do mixed race trainings around, um, mm. these, these issues of anti-racism. We need to bring in people of color mm. to do that.
3: Yeah. Mm. I think it's, um, yeah, it's, I was wondering the same thing. Hope it was going to be my next question of, you know, how do you walk that line of not centering whiteness in the work in this, but also holding space for the necessity for the work that is happening in your group. And I think I, I love, I wrote down the, the referral list, right. Of like for the trainings that you're not doing the trainings. I think that that's Mm -hmm. like an amazing component of the work that you're doing i guess now it's you know my question is how how will you measure your success in this group right so what are you hoping to accomplish what are you um i love hope wrote down a question of like how will you know kind of it worked (laughs) or
2: it is working it's just funny that. because as I wrote that question, I was like, "This is so like capitalist, <laughs> white, like cultural. Like you must have measures and do this thing." And I'm measure. Like, you doing as I'm writing, because this? this is like a lifelong journey. So you're just gonna measure it at the end of your life. I don't know. So but, hold but- all that at the this- same.
1: But I do think that you're what you're asking for is we're teachers here, right? So you're asking for like a, a. What's formative. your learning objective? So yeah, exactly. I need you. It's, yeah, it's, I'm going to need you to have like
3: standards. What are the standards that you're measuring against? I, I need a full like rubric with the BAME scale,
1: like just all of it. It's a formative check for understanding. Yes, but I actually go. think on the simplest simplest level, if. One person came back to us and said, I recognize that a pattern of deflection that I am using regularly in my interactions with people is silence or is, I know this already, or one of the ones that we had on our list. To me, that would be a tremendous success. Frankly, for myself, when I shared that story that made myself feel very vulnerable, a measure of success for myself is going to be if I get to the point where I've practiced Mm -hmm. enough interrupting patterns of racism, Mm -hmm. then I'm able to do it in the real world. That would be a measure of success. And those are small steps. And of course, I think ultimately, we'd like to see a much bigger step, which would be school systemic changes Mm -hmm. around white supremacist systems that that exist Mm -hmm. in international schools, but one step at a time. Mm
0: Yeah. Like you said, how about you is. Yeah. I mean, it's lifelong work, right? So we don't have an end point in mind. Um, we're sort of doing this as long as it feels valuable um, for, mm-hmm. for people. And even if it's just for, you know, three people, <laughs> and if that's what it ends up being, we, we, we kind of, like I said, we came to this wondering if this would be of interest to anybody. And as long as it is, and as long as people are getting some value out of it and you know, we, it's been really gratifying to hear back from people um, that they have brought these conversations to their school, right? So we have people joining from all over the place and they'll just be like one person, maybe from one school, but then we've heard back that people are bringing these conversations to their colleagues back at their, their school. And people have asked, you know, can we use some of the content um, in your slides? And it's Like, yes, yeah, please share. Like this is, this is for everyone. We want this to be as useful as possible in, in sparking conversations and in making change and in, in our, in our little international school community. So,
3: yeah. So what, if our listeners um, are hearing this episode and are maybe teachers in the United States, which mm-hmm. I think predominantly many of our listeners are one would they find space in your group? And two, if not, how, like, what advice would you give to listeners that want to start something like this in their own communities? Yeah. I mean, our school definitely
0: has an international school lens. So I think it's most relevant to that, that Mm -hmm. sort of population, Mm -hmm. but Um, I think that's a really good opportunity for people to create a group for their community, because it's going to be most relevant for the people who are participating, and you want to be able to tailor it, right, so that people really can connect it to their own lives and their own work. We, um, some of the resources that we used when we were developing our mission and our purpose and our rationale were um, the the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, they offer affinity groups as well. So we use some of their language and some of their thoughts um, that we credit in our mm-hmm. mission and also in our purpose. And then also um, Roots of Justice does some really excellent work around affinity groups. Um, and they have a document about white white caucuses in particular, which is another word for an affinity yeah. group that helps us sort yeah. of develop and um, polish our goals for the group and and our sense of, of who we are. So I would direct your listeners to those because those resources are not international specific. Really, we, we've we mm-hmm. taken actually a lot of resources that are U.S. based because I think that's where a lot of affinity groups are going on right now, at least the English language ones, which is what we speak. Mm-hmm. And then we've designed, we've, we've sort of adjusted that for an international context, but folks in the U.S. should be able to, and in Canada as well, um, should be able to find resources that are really specific to their area. So yeah, yeah, and I think, go ahead, Tamara.
1: Well, I was just gonna add that, you know, as much as I said that I was really um, felt liberated when I read Joe Truss's website and the message was just do it. At the same time, I would right. definitely caution that you need to know your context really well, mm-hmm. that this is work that is best done when it is supported by the community of color within which you are working. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, is easily, it is work that is easily misconstrued. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think particularly in contexts where there are uh heavily loaded conversations, there, there are tensions around race relations. I think you do have to be very thoughtful about proceeding with this type of work uh, in a US setting where you have a lot of diversity, which doesn't is not to say don't do it. There are people who are doing it around the country. And um, Francis Kendall, who actually wrote, the book understanding white privilege in 2006 years before white fragility came out. And she was a big proponent. And I, she was actually my professor was where I first got started with the affinity group idea. But so her book is, is really great in terms of a a possible starting point, but I do think that you you need to be thoughtful in moving Mm -hmm. forward. It's worthwhile work, but should be done with some, planning and deep thought and and also collaboration with people of color in your community yeah our just do it happened
0: probably after 50 plus hours of of thought and and talk and planning and so we really we were very deliberate about why we were doing what we were doing and what we wanted to do um put a lot of thought into it I think that will make it more successful uh you know not Mm -hmm. to slow anyone down exactly but but to be really clear on, on the work that you're doing.
1: But I also think something that's unique to our particular context, Emily, I'll be curious if you agree with this, is that we are not affiliated with any particular school or district, Mm -hmm. which is a, is a different kind of a work than if you're in your own school Mm -hmm. and say, I think we should Mm -hmm. start a, Mm -hmm. and, and maybe that's a possibility for people too. Mm -hmm is to create a similar type of a group that's not necessarily affiliated with a particular school or district, but have it be more um, open-ended. I think both things are really worthwhile work, but I do think it's important to note that about the work that we're doing.
2: Well, and that that makes me think about how last year um, Facebook (laughs) popped up with all these different international groups. And so folks were like, global pandemic teaching, ah! And then at first, it was just like everyone international because we went with the pandemic first, <laughs> sort of. And then suddenly U.S. teachers were like, oh, crap, we're closed, too. And, you know, start looking to China and look into various places around the world. And so I think about what you just pose is, is kind of interesting to think, um, what would that look like to have a national framework, right, versus in a district or even cross district or say, hey, mm-hmm. we're going to get some people from different parts of the state. This is what we believe. Here's the mission we're going to have. Here's what we're going to pull this work together. Um, and just all the opportunity for thinking reflection that could come from kind of a cross-section as well
3: Mm -hmm. absolutely so we are definitely going to be linking all of these resources that you have referenced and (laughs) talked about throughout this episode in our show notes so if any of our listeners are interested in learning more I love what you said, Emily, about, you know, our just do it moment came after about 50 (laughs) hours of conversations. I think please like internalize that message that just do it does not mean that you send out an invitation to a meeting just now after listening to this episode, but maybe just start looking into it. Just do it in terms of like starting to have the conversation, starting to do that research. Um, and doing it with a lot of intentionality Yeah. that um, maybe the idea that if it's not happening in your area, you might be the person that's being called to do it. So (laughs) this is maybe your, your sign that um, you can be the person, if you feel like there's a lack of a conversation happening in your community, that maybe you can be the one to, to start that. Um, So yeah, we'll have all of those resources linked and so let's um move into our final segment of our episode do your fudging homework
1: interchangeable
3: ladies so this is just where we leave our listeners with a final kind of homework assignment um if they're interested in kind of following up with the conversation that we've had if you have any awesome recommendations now is the time to do that hope do you want to kind of kick us off
2: well, I'm so glad you brought up um, the cultural responsive leadership because I stumbled upon their page and I was like, "Ooh, this looks good. But I hadn't really, you know, I hadn't really looked for it what they presented I think that's why I hadn't found them before so I'm glad you brought that up and I also found another site racial equity tools that seem to have kind of um, created a list of a, a lot of different organizations and sources so I'm going to link to both those things and I really want to challenge listeners to think about what you've heard today in terms of your own work your own journey what does that mean for your own process in anti-racism work like does that mean maybe you know maybe you don't have an organization that you're starting or like a, a larger thing but maybe you have a couple of friends where you're doing this work together and "Me and White Supremacy" by Leila Sayad I think is a great place to start. Mm. Um, there's actually a kids version of that coming out soon. Oh, cool. So even there's there's other things that are available. Kids version, teen version. I, I just saw her and I just saw it in a newsletter. Yeah, she's working on it. Um, and so there's other things available to help. If you're if you're nervous about doing something in a, in a bigger way, start with a few of your friends in your neighborhood, um, your okay, mom's group, okay. whatever it may be, whoever it may be. Emily, you got homework for our listeners. Well, um, you know, welcome to join
0: us at our next session on June 24th. We can give you a link to the registration for for people who are, I'm not sure how many of your listeners are in the international context, but you certainly welcome, um, we welcome newcomers. Um, I would say for folks wanting to integrate more anti-racism teaching, so for for teachers, um, the learning for justice standards are great and those mm-hmm. can also be applied in an international context so they they can be you know u.s canada international um so that's those are a couple of resources
1: yeah i mean i think that you've given so many to hope um but i think that also going back to understanding white fr- privilege by francis kendall which was you yeah. know 2006 it was a, a prior to white fragility but that's a, a good resource as well. And then it's always interesting when you're doing the inside out work. I don't know if you've mentioned this before, but the the Harvard School of Ed website has the Mm. Harvard implicit bias Mm. test. Perhaps Mm -hmm. you've mentioned that. I don't know if you've mentioned that on the website before, but I mean, on the podcast before, but that's a really interesting starting point for people who are like, do I really have some implicit bias? And it's just an interesting uh, thing to check The answer is yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) <laughs> Surprise! The answer Surprise! is yes.
2: <laughs> Pick your category. I love they've yeah. expanded yeah. that in the last this last year. I was looking at it and there's like 20 more quizzes, mm-hmm. you know. And I'm like, wow, okay. I love how they're going into some really nuanced. It's a really things fantastic website already.
3: for resources mm-hmm. and tools. Um, I think that all of you kind of. Um, gave a lot of really fantastic, fantastic homework. So I'm just going to say ditto to everything that has already been stated as my homework. Um, And honestly, as the person that like, you know, is teaching in the United States right now, um, before you reinvent the wheel in your community, do some research to see if this work is already being done around you. Right. I, I think that um, really encouraging you to do some research have some conversations and and find spaces where this work is being done already and um, and join in on that conversation that's a very good point Megan we did I sent
0: out several emails beforehand to say have you heard of this already because yes you, mm-hmm, you yeah. if there's already something in place you don't need to uh, compete like join forces <laughs> work
3: together mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. combine mm-hmm. so Thank you so much for joining us um, on the podcast and the conversation and for doing the work that you're doing. Thanks for having we us. I really appreciate you
1: both. <clears throat> yeah, it was fun.
2: Thanks. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you.
3: My hair is like. Been bothering me the whole okay, time. Everybody cough. Go ahead. <laughs> I know. They get the coughs
2: out. Ugh. The Interchangeable White Ladies podcast is part of the Channel 253 network. Check out our other shows. Nerd Farmer, Citizen Tacoma, Crossing Division, Flanders B Team, We Art Tacoma, and What Say You. This is Channel
1: 253.